This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Hi everyone, it's Rabbi Dr. Jack Cohn with the holiday of Shavuos right around the corner. It would be a wonderful idea to give some chizik on this great holiday. The Gemara tells us in the tractate of Psachim a very interesting and wonderful story. Rabbi Yosef, who was a great scholar, would announce to everyone on the day of Shavuos, on this holiday of Shavuos which is coming up, prepare me a large succulent calf so we can enjoy the holiday. For if not for this wonderful holiday of Shavuos, I would be just some commoner in the street, some Joe Schmo. The question is asked, what is unique about this holiday of Shavuos that made Rabbi Yosef feel this way? After all, he was an accomplished scholar. He was a, a scholar of tremendous reputation. He was a man of chesed. Why did he have to specifically single out Shavuos as the holiday that would make him unique as an individual? <clears throat> to answer that question, let me just cite a remark. There is a great uh, British poet and uh, writer who wrote that the idea of the Aryan race which is that there's a master race, was really something that comes from the concept from the Jewish nation that we are a chosen people. To that we say you are wrong. We are not the chosen people because we are a master race. We are the chosen people because we chose a master for ourselves. Perhaps I can embellish that concept by telling you a very powerful story. There was a great rabbi named Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, a leader of the Jewish world back in the 1900s. I was alive to be able to know him well. Anyway, his uh, an incredible story. Rabbi Kamenetsky was on a flight to El Al. On the flight with him was his son and his grandchildren. Throughout the flight, the venerated sage was taken care of by his son and his grandchildren incredibly. They took care of him, made sure that all of his needs were met. They propped up his pillows, they propped up his legs, they got him the food, they took him to the restroom, they took care of his farm, made sure that he was happy, took care of all of his needs. Watching this whole sight across the aisle was an individual who was a completely secular Jew. This individual was the secretary of the Histadrut party, which is the labor union in Israel. He was a very powerful individual, someone completely disconnected from Judaism, but he was profoundly moved and affected by the behavior that he saw, where the rabbi's children took care of him at his beck and call, making sure that he was, he was taken care of in every which way. After the flight, he couldn't help himself. He approached Rabbi Kamenetsky and he said, you know something, I was watching throughout the flight how your children and grandchildren took care of all your needs, I would never get such service for my kids. Why is it that your children and grandchildren took care of you so well? The venerated sage offered an outstanding response. And here's what he told him. I'm an Orthodox Jew. Our connection to Judaism goes back all the way to the time that we as a nation stood at the foot of Har Sinai, the mountain of Sinai, to receive the Torah. That's a link. That's a connection to God. That's a, de- that's a degree of, ha- of, of holiness that we have today. As a result, my children treat me as if I'm connected to God because I'm a Tzalem Elohim. I'm an image of God. You, on the other hand, don't believe in Judaism. You actually believe in Darwinism, which is the theory of evolution, that we all come from apes and monkeys. As a result, your children treat you no better than a monkey. We have to understand something. Over 3,300 years ago, we accepted that torch to be God's chosen people because we accepted His Torah. And as a result, we broke off from this whole distinction of the, the rest of the world, which feels that we come from apes and monkeys. We're not just some accident. I'm not just some accident. We're here because we're part of a purpose. We're part of a plan. So when Rabbi Yosef made that statement that bring me a succulent calf to enjoy on Shavuot, because if not for Shavuot, I'd be just be some Joe Shmo. What he was saying is that he's part of a plan. He's connected to a link that goes back 3,300 years ago, established on the day of Shavuot. For if not for Shavuot, we would just be some Joe Shmo, some John Doe on the street. That's how critical this holiday is. And it makes us feel special, and it makes us feel unique. Perhaps I can illustrate an incredible story, which I heard from Rab Nachman Seltzer, an amazing story, called the Millionaire's Club. There was a professor in an Ivy League school. He had an important and burning question on his mind. 
He wanted to know what makes a millionaire. What are the key points, the key qualities of character that a millionaire must have? There's got to be something that they all have, a common thread. So he assigned 250 PhD students to live with 250 millionaires. After all, millionaires love to brag, love to tell about their success, love to tell about how they got to the top. And they all went out and they lived with their case studies in their homes, which the hosts were happily you know, willing to provide. And listen to what happened. After six months, they all came back, all the PhD students, to present their findings. They were then given a huge amphitheater. The professor got up. He says, we've been waiting for this moment. And as they got up one by one to tell about the millionaire that they studied, there was an amazing correlation going on. Each person that lived with the millionaire had the same findings. And they would say the following, my guy is ruthless. My guy is being sued or suing someone. My guy will do whatever it takes to get to the top. He'll crush anyone that gets in his way. And so the pattern went one after the next after the next until the 250th guy got up there and it was amazing he was completely off the chart he said I studied a man by the name of Jason Bigelow who was a pharmacy magnet he's not suing anyone he's not being sued he has no enemies he's not ruthless he didn't crush anyone to get to where he is now the professor was dumbfounded why is this specific person Mr. Bigelow so different than everyone else why is he not being sued or suing anyone why is he unique? So they decided to put together another group of students to go out there and study him and ask him the question. So they went out to his beautiful house, which is overlooking the ocean in the Hamptons in Long Island, and they said to him, you know, Mr. Bigelow, you've been part of a study of 250 million years. And he said, yes, I'm totally aware of that. And he said, something unique happened. Whereas 249 out of the 250 million years all fell into a nice, neat paradigm. You did not. You have no enemies. You're not being sued. You didn't sue anyone. You didn't crush anyone to get to the top. Why are you unique? Why are you different? Listen to the answer he gave them. And he said the following. You want, you want to know something? I was raised by a father who gave me those principles. He said, son, you have to set an agenda in your life. You have to get to the top. And whatever it takes, you got to get there. That means that anyone who gets in your way, you crush them. You get them out of the way. You've got to be ruthless. And that's the way I operated. Until several years ago, something amazing happened. I and several other executives of multinational corporations decided, you know what? We need to expand our markets. Let's take a trip to Europe to expand our markets and, and get some more sales going. So we chartered the private jet. And about 20 of us executives of multinational corporations, all each individual successful in his own right, was part of the group. And we went and we did business and we decided, you know what, Israel is just a couple of hours away. Let's just go to Israel, check it out. You know, it is startup nation. So let's check it out. So we went to Israel, we had meetings, it was successful. We had one day left in our trip and we decided to hire ourselves a tour guide. Let's see this wonderful land. After all, it's archaeologically very significant. It's historically very significant. So the tour guide took us all over the country, from the north to the south, from North Sharnikra all the way down to the Negev, to Elat. It was breathtaking. We saw the beaches of Ashdod. We saw the beautiful port of Yafo. And then our tour guide hit us with an amazing line. He said, I've saved the best for last, gentlemen, because we're now going to go to a very unique area in Yerushalayim, in the capital of Jerusalem. And there's an area called Beis Yisrael. I'd like to take you to an area which houses the largest single yeshiva or institute of higher Talmudic learning in the world. It's called the Mir Yeshiva, so let's go there. So we went there. It was a nondescript area. You know, very simple homes. And we saw several campuses. And then <coughs> we were treated to a tour inside the yeshiva. And Mr. Bigelow is telling the story. He says, what I saw in there was outstanding. Here we were, multi-millionaires in our own right. As we walked into the halls of this incredible yeshiva, there were all these people learning 
so intensely involved in their learning, there wasn't an inch to be found. People were learning on stairwells, underneath stairwells, wherever they could find the spot. And above all, what was most interesting, they didn't even pay attention to us. You'd think we'd have gotten their attention from our looks, from our presentations, but no, they were so fixed, fixated, loving their learning of their Torah, that it was absolutely amazing. We walked out, and our tour guide asked us a question. He said, you know what, there are 6,000 students in this yeshiva. If this was an American university, can you, can, can you suggest how many square meters you would need in order to be able to educate a, 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 popul- a student population of 6,000? And he said, please consider, you need lounges for students, lounges for, for professors, you need offices, you need classrooms, and you need, a, 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 you, know, you need to have a campus. And he says, I, I did the homework. You need about 150,000 square meters. Here, you have a total of 3,000 square meters, which is, if you do the math, each student is getting roughly a half a meter in which to be able to learn. A very s- small amount. And if you had 6,000 students in an American university, roughly how many professors would you need to educate them? And he said, I did the math for you. About 400 to 500. Here, you have a little bit more of a dozen. And if you had a student body of 6,000, you'd need a dean and assistant deans and all types of administrative staff to be able to handle all the load. Here you have one individual, probably one of the most powerful people in the world. He passed away since. He was a great tzaddik. And his name is Ramosad Tzvi Finkel. There's one individual, and he's not even feeling well. He suffers from Parkinson's, which is an unfortunate debilitating uh, disease. He runs the whole show. He's responsible to ensure that the 40 to $50 million annual budget is raised. I've taken the liberty of making an appointment to go visit with the dean. So they walked all over the hallway into a tiny little alleyway, as you know, the alleyways of, of Yerushalayim. And they rang the bell into a very simple, modest apartment. You'd think for a dean of a major university, he'd have a 5 or $10 million penthouse overlooking the Western Wall. But not in Ratzon Finkel. They walked in, and Mr. Bigelow says, it was shocking, it was such a simple apartment. Books everywhere, everywhere. As we walked in, one of the members of our group, who himself was a leader of a multi-billion dollar international corporation, says, Rabbi, how do you do it? How do you run it? How do you run your organization with such precision? We run multinational corporations. We don't do what you do. Not with the precision and efficiency that you do. Ramnathan Tzvi Finko looked at them and said, Gentlemen, I have a question for you. What's the difference between an animal and a human being? And the, and the rabbi answered the question for them. He says, Gentlemen, an animal, when it wants something, it grabs, it lunges, it attacks. A human being can restrain himself. A human being can control himself. A human being can discipline himself. Gentlemen, what you saw today are human beings. And when you have human beings, you can have 6,000 people in such tight quarters and there's no concern for space. Why? Because the person is always thinking of the other person. It's not just about me. Ani, Rabbi Yalehudasa would tell us, your greatness is defined by your Ani, your I. If your I is tiny, that means you're a tiny person. But as you expand your radiance, and your, your radius, it gets bigger. Here we have human beings who don't think of themselves, they think of the other person. In such a scenario, no one feels that it's tight because they're always thinking about the first, the other person first. That's the greatness of Torah, ladies and gentlemen. That's what it teaches us here. That if not for the Torah that we accepted 3,300 years ago, we'd be animals. Like the apes, like the monkeys, like the people out there who believe that we come from monkeys. Perhaps I can share an incredible Devar Torah that can really highlight this area. You know that the holiday of Shuas is always preceded by my Bar Mitzvah Parsha, which is Bar Midbar. In Bar Midbar, in the Parsha Bar Midbar, which means desert, something unique we're told about there, that the nation of Israel camped in the desert as a quadrant. There were three Shvatim, three tribes to each quadrant. And they all had their individual flags. The Medrash tells us that the Gentiles, the nations of the world, would look down, peer down at them, and admire their flags, which was an interesting thing. 
Flags are nothing new to the Gentiles. Gentile nations also have flags. What was so admirable about the flags that they admired them? To the point where Bilam Arasha, when he attempted to curse them, and he looked down and he saw them camped, he says, Matovu Alecha Yaakov, Mishkinotecha Yisrael. How, how great, right? Matovu, are your tents, Yaakov, your dwelling places, he admired them. So the question is asked, the Gentiles also have flags. What's so unique about our flags? Here's the difference. To the Gentile nations, the flags represent individualism, nationalism. They take the flag, but they use the flag to go out and march to war with it, to do evil and destruction with it. Ours is different. We may have had individual flags for our tribes, but they all pointed to the center of the camp, which was the Mishkan, which was the tabernacle, which is where Hashem dwelt, which is where the Shekhinah, the divine presence dwelt. Yes, we have flags, but the individual is, is secondary to the greater good of the, of, the, uh, of the nation. Yes, our flags point to the Torah that we're loyal to, that we abide by. We live as Ish Echad Kelev Echad. It tells us about the Jewish nation when they came to receive the Torah. They were like one person with one heart. The flag is subsumed to the greater good of the nation. It's all about the greater good and the chesed that we do for others. At this point, I'd like to share an amazing story with you, which is recent in this corona pandemic era. Something amazing. A couple flew in from uh, Europe because the husband was sick and he needed chemotherapy. And they went to a a very prestigious hospital and clinic in South Florida in the Boca Raton area. They rented themselves a house, a villa for an individual, while Mendy, the husband, received chemotherapy treatments. And this is around uh, February and March this past year. Now, as it's getting closer to Purim, the treating physician tells the, uh, the wife, your husband needs one more round, and I think he'll be okay. He's going to recover. And after that, you can go home. But I'd be concerned, I would not take, I would not fly back commercial flight because your husband has immunocompromised situation. Being that he's a cancer patient, if he gets on a commercial flight, he can easily contract a virus or an illness and pass away. You're going to have to figure out how to way to get, get him in on a private jet if possible. And so they decided to take the last round of treatment. It went longer than expected and they found themselves right before Pesach. The owner of the villa, who was a kindly man, said, had given it to them with great favorable terms, but he said to them, you've got to be out the air of Pesach. Because my daughter is driving down from New York. She always takes this house. And I, I, there's no exceptions. So the lady made phone calls. There was no housing to be found anywhere in Florida. No housing whatsoever. So the decision was made that on Sunday night, remember this year, Pesach was Wednesday night. On Sunday night, she's just going to rent a car and she's going to drive up to New York where a cousin of hers had agreed to give her, a, as a loaner, a basement apartment. She didn't really like the idea after all her husband who was sick would have to sit in the back and he was not up to it but out of desperation there was no other choice meanwhile the granddaughter was getting married in London and they had never missed a uh, simcha of the family so they felt so bad they tried be as it may to get a flight but all flights were cancelled as you remember all international flights were cancelled if not most domestic flights so now what were they to do and the children said to them you can't take said to the mother you can't take Tati to New York it's infested with corona people are dying left and right if we remember unfortunately about what happened in New York in March, March April era it was terrible people were dying in New York every day so the children were very much against it unfortunately they couldn't make it to the granddaughter's wedding so they had to watch it on, on Zoom Tyrion and all, and then they went about the task of determining what's going to be our fate. So there was, they put out a, a, a call to the, the people in the shul, and there was a kindly man by the name of Sam Halaby, who was a person who loved to do chesed. He heard out the lady, he said, let me see what I can do. And he worked on it, he worked on it. So finally, right before they were supposed to get in the car to drive to New York on that fateful Sunday, Sam Halaby called uh, Ellen, who was the wife, and he said, Ellen, I found a possibility for you. There is a fellow by the name of Chet Masri who lives in 
uh, Boca Raton. He owns a beautiful uh, villa in a private lagoon. He's willing to rent you the house for Pesach. There you could stay. However, one big catch is it's going to be very expensive. Your stay for the eight days of Pesach will cost you 15 grand. Now, if you remember that Pesach ended this past year on a Thursday night, and he says he's insistent you've got to be out of the house by Friday because the air conditioning units are going down. They're about to collapse and they're about to, you know, stop working. He's got to get new units in there and the work's going to be, has been contracted to start on that Friday. So she said, what are we going to do? We spent most of our money on medical treatments for my husband. We had our last bit of savings, but out of desperation, she took the deal. She paid the 15000 and as she describes, we moved into this fabulous, beautiful home. It was so big, it could have housed 100 people. And here, my husband and I were going to spend Pesach here. And she, uh, she prepared Pesach, and she had bought food from a local market. She said that the kitchen was as big, if not bigger, than her entire apartment back in Europe. So anyway, it was a very lonely Pesach, very lonely Sedarim. They went through the holiday, and then when the holiday ended, after the holiday ended, Sam Hallaby called Ellen. He said, you know, um, you should call uh, Chet Masri, the owner of the house, and tell him thank you for letting him stay in the house. And then she said to him, could you please ask him, please beg him, is it possible to let us stay for Shabbos? So Sam made the call. And uh, Chet understood that the man is sick. He can't. Uh, it would be hard for them to leave on a Thursday night, and the chances of arriving to Brooklyn before Shabbos would be difficult. It's a long drive over 24 hours nonstop. So he agreed and let them have the house. But he said, "You've got to be out by Sunday." Okay. So they stayed for Shabbos Saturday night. Sam Halby called and he said, "Is everything okay? You ready to go?" She says, "Yes. We're going to start packing tomorrow morning. I'm going to drive the car with my husband in the back." So Sam said, "So you know what? It would be a good idea. I think it would be a great idea." If you called Chet Masri and thanked him for giving you the opportunity to stay for Shabbos, he didn't have to. So she called him and said, Mr. Masri, thank you so much for letting us stay for Shabbos. Would you come by so I can personally, my husband and I can personally thank you for this incredible act of uh, generosity and kindness that you uh, did for us. He said, sure, I have to come anyway to check out the house. So Mr. Masri came and she describes he was a well-built man in his mid-50s, South American accent, which I... Uh, recognized right away because my husband Mendy had aunts and uncles who had lived in South America that had since moved to Brooklyn, New York. And they're talking and they're talking. And Chet tells them he was born in Venezuela where he lived. He said, well, at one time the country was so prosperous. It was a beautiful life. He, he grew up in a non-Orthodox home. They were not religious. And he says, you know, I had this great friend. His name was David, David, David Cohen. And David was an incredible uh, friend. He would teach us when we didn't know what was going on in the class. He invited me to his house all the time. His parents were so loving. I spent every Shabbat there. If I'm anything today, it's because of this David Cohen. He turned me into who I am. He told me it was so important back then to find a great woman to marry. And so when I first got married, I told my wife that I have to home, which is a, I have to have a home of Torah, a home where there's going to be modesty and there'll be sanctity. And we kept that deal. I said to my wife, it's non-negotiable. It's been 40 years since I uh, had anything to do with my friend. He had packed up, his brother had passed away, and the family moved to Brooklyn, New York, and I haven't heard of him. Mendy, who was the husband sitting on the table looking all pale and sickly, said, what you say his name is? David Cohn from Venezuela. Suddenly, Mendy popped out his cell phone. He started scrolling through his images, his photographs, and then he says to Chet Masri, is this, does this picture look familiar to you? Chet looks at the picture, he goes, it looks like my friend's father. I can remember the face from 40 years ago. He says, wow, that's amazing. And Mendy says to him, you have to understand something. This is my first cousin. Our mothers are sisters. And this is a picture from uh, two weeks ago when David Cohen married off his son. 
And Chet said, no, it can't be. It's too coincidental. What would the possibility be that it would be the same guy? He says, Mendy says, I'll get him on the phone. So they dialed the phone because it happened to be that David was going to be the host for them if they went to New York. And uh, Mendy put uh, David on the phone and the Chet started talking to him in Spanish and they talked for 20 minutes, an hour. They went out to, he went out to the porch to talk to him. He was overflowing with emotions. He came back. And he said, it's absolutely amazing. What would the possibilities be that I'd speak to a friend who I haven't spoken to in 40 years who was responsible for my entire growth in life? So he says, uh, David told me about what you're planning to do to drive up the, two, and, and the 1,200 miles from Florida to New York and how sick your husband is. And I said to myself, I can't let you do this. No way. I'm going to let you stay for the month in this wonderful villa. And so it's okay. So Ellen says, but we don't have the money. Where will we ever get the money to afford this palatial estate and uh, Chet looks at them and he says it's okay it's on the house how can I it's nothing compared to what David did for me he saved my life if if I'm anything today it's because of my wonderful friend David so you can stay on the house this is the lesson of Shavuot we're one nation we're one people who lives to help each other like we learned from the millionaire story with Rav Nassim Tzvi Finkel if we're human beings that we're not animals that means we think about the other person we care about the other person we are one nation with one soul let's use this opportunity to celebrate like Rabbi Yosef told us to celebrate to take to enjoy our meals and to say Hashem thank you for the holiday of Shavuot which distinctly makes us unique and tells us that we have a link to the past. We're part of a chain of an amazing religion that we chose our master, that our master loves us and here to help us because we have a Torah that guides us, that loves us, that shows us how to act as human beings and take care of each other. That's what makes us the singular chosen people. Ladies and gentlemen, let me wish you a fantastic holiday of Shavuot, a holiday in which you can really internalize the message of, of Shavuot. It should be a holiday of deep meaning and deep enjoyment and we should be healthy and happy. We should greet Mashiach You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.